0: Dan Colbert is a co-author of The Pretty Good House, which is, ironically, more than just a pretty good book, and he's also the owner of Colbert Building in Portland, Maine, a builder of high-performance, sustainable homes, something that, as you'll see on the podcast today, Dan is passionate about. In this conversation, Dan mentions a lot of great resources, so be sure to check those out in the show notes of the podcast, and without further ado, let's kick this thing off. Before we begin, I would be remiss without a quick thanks to three very important Building Optimal Partners. First, to Lowe's and their MVP's Pro Rewards and Partnership Program, of which my own company is a very proud member. With exclusive benefits and offers like e-gift cards and in-store freebies, Lowe's is a true partner, enabling contractors like you and me to succeed. Second, to RAM Windows made right here, In the Lone Star State, I use RAM windows on every home, and I love everything about the windows they make and what that company stands for. And last, but certainly not least, to Sub-Zero Wolf Cove, the premier appliance company in the world, which we use exclusively in our homes. We are thankful for the support of these wonderful companies, which help make this podcast a reality. Dan, you're a builder of high-end, high-performance homes in Portland, Maine. You also co-authored a book called Pretty Good House, which serves as a guide to constructing better, more sustainable homes. Of all the ideas that you've developed over your career and your writings, if you could only share one idea with the building world that you think we need to hear, what would that idea be?
1: I was thinking about this question and there are two, I guess, if I don't know if I, you can pick which one you like better. One is simple is better. And the other is water always wins.
0: Yeah. Well, let's dig into both of those. Okay. So, <laughs> simple is always better is something that, as I was reading through your book, I definitely saw that theme. When you talk about the value of simplicity in terms of forms as you're designing homes. Tell us a little bit more about that. Why is simple better? Yeah,
1: I always joke that the perfect pretty good house is what a kindergartner would draw with crayons minus the chimney. So simpler is better. I think along with simpler comes smaller too, but simpler is better because it's easier to build. Complicated engineering means you are using a lot of LVL and things, which A, are expensive, and B, are typically taking up space that you'd want to insulate. So I think the complicated engineering lends to more thermal bridging than you'd want. It's hard to detail. If you got a lot of jogs, that's more, you got hips and valleys, which wear out much faster than the field of the roof. If you got a lot of jogs, ins and outs, and walls, it's just more, it's harder to insulate, it's harder to waterproof, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, in our part of the world where we build homes are Not necessarily simple on average, because we also have in the city of Austin, at least a lot of different constraints on what we can build. And we're building around what we call heritage size or protected trees. We have constrained building envelopes from setbacks, et cetera. To just build a simple form house might put a lot of constraints on the overall project. What would you be advising a client who's in Austin and is offering that feedback to you.
1: Yeah, so first of all, everything is a everything is we're talking about the book again for a minute. The point of the book was absolutely not to be prescriptive. In fact, the opposite. We make that very clear that we're not giving a set. Our book, as we say, the book is a how-to. The book is not a how-to, it's a why-to. You work with, I think that's a big part of what we talk about in the book too, is just that there is a lot of constraints and you work. That's why, in some ways, that's why we're non-prescriptive because every job has its unique set of constraints, whether it's the site, the budget, whatever it is. The owners, they have health issues. There's just always, there's always something specific that you need to work around. So, you know, you do what you can. That's if there was a motto to our book, I'd say that would be it, do what you can.
0: One of the things in your book that you mentioned that I appreciate is your focus on site orientation as one of the best, cheapest things you can do for a really high outcome to build. And that goes back to a long time ago, I saw this graph. And basically, it's a graph where To try to describe it visually, you have um, this essentially exponential curve, and on one axis, you've got essentially the time. So the beginning of the graph is when you first start a project, and towards the end of the graph is as you're well into construction, and then you've got cost. And the idea is to explore the cost of basically changes and decisions over the course of the project. And early on, when you're making those decisions, such as site orientation, you have such a high ROI, such a minimal cost for the value that you get. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you get out further into the project and you're making changes later on and it's exponentially more expensive. What you talk about in the book reminded me that graph that I'd seen so many years ago and, and since forgotten. But anyway, just to tie that back in, I think that it's a really important, as you say, like principle to keep in mind the simple is better and it's relative. So simple when you've got a hundred acres to build on might be a little bit different definition versus simple here in the city of Austin. But I think it's a, it's an important lesson that you've learned and you're sharing with your readers. What about, what about the second lesson? Water always wins. (laughs) I think we probably, anybody who's been building for any period of time has their own stories about that, but let's. I, it just it.
1: means that you need to you need to plan for it right you can't pretend that you're not going to have issues so you need to make the building inspectable repairable you need to have a water management plan you need to have a vapor management plan all of those things one of the things i like about recent sort of recent building science discussions is this idea of the four control layers that's that people have started using in the last few years the thermal layer which is your insulation the air barrier, the air layer, air control layer, the weather control layer, or the water control layer, and then the vapor control layer. And I think it's a great way to think about it because it makes it clear that all they're all, yeah, I just like the term control layer it makes it clear that you've got these four things that you need to think about,
0: yeah, and you better After- have
1: and you better have a strategy for all of them,
0: yeah. and. That alone is an entire series of podcast discussions <laughs> just talking about water and different control layers. Do you have any recommended resources for our listeners that you think they can benefit from in terms of learning more about those four control? Yeah, layers? I
1: think if you're on Instagram, I think Christine Williamson is just a genius. Building Science Fight Club.
0: Yeah, we had her on the podcast a long time ago. She is oh, great. amazing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And she's in your part of the world too, right?
0: Yeah, I think she's up yeah. in Dallas at least oh, okay. as of a few years ago.
1: Anyway, Christine is a great resource. If you if you think that you're pretty knowledgeable already, there's a book called Water and Buildings by William Rose. And it's an incredibly detailed book. It's very scientific. And I have to admit, I've read it a few times. And each I'd say the first time I read it, I understood about a third of it. So each time you read it, hopefully you get a little bit more. So if you're really interested in in on a literally granular level, that's a great book. Wow, um, so many resources out there. Frankly, even the manufacturers are good resources these days. I think there was a time when we had good reason to be mistrustful of them, but I think most of them have gotten their act together. There's So there's a, companies that only do like high performance stuff like Sega or Proclima or places like that. I think Huberwood is a great company and i think they've got great resources as well i think every zip system is everywhere obviously but so presumably you've got a tech support rep or somebody in your part of the world since they seem to sell it by the boatload everywhere in the country
0: so yeah and you're in a cold weather climate up in portland maine so this isn't going to apply to everybody but i'd be curious if you could break down for us your preferred control and barrier system
1: Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is just that vapor of the four control layers, I think the vapor control layer is the most complicated and the most, the least understood, I think. And I certainly include myself in that category as well. The vapor control layer basically is you're trying to keep one side of your wall is going to have a higher vapor Pressure than the other side, and they're going to be seeking to equalize, so you don't want that vapor ending up somewhere where it's going to condense or rot or whatever, all the bad things that water does. So in Maine, obviously, we've got in a heating climate, you've got warm, humid air inside the house in the winter, trying to get into the wall assembly to the dry exterior, and in your part of the world, it's the opposite, right? You've got dry, cool, conditioned air, in the summer and you've got all this hot humid air that's trying to equalize in your wall assembly as well. So that's the first thing with vapor controls just figuring out where where what the drive is and what you want to do about it. With climate change Maine is getting more and more turning into a more and more of a mixed climate. We used to when I started building nobody ever talked about air conditioning. It just wasn't needed. But now we are, partly it's just because of the ubiquity of heat pumps has made it a lot easier to include cooling in projects. But uh, it's definitely needed for not all summer like it is in your part of the world probably, but certainly there's a couple of weeks a year where it's getting pretty miserable. So anyway, my point is just that I have actually, on the vapor control, I'm actually shooting for Pretty vapor open in both directions since the drive is going to be in both directions in our part of the world. But that again is a very that's a local condition. The re- the other ones are much easier, I think, and more universal. We in a we're zone six, we're a cold climate, so we need a lot of R value, much more than you guys do. So I when I'm building a new house, I'm shooting for at least like R 40 in the walls, and I like to build double wall with dense pack cellulose in it. And that is, that's done as other people just, you know, other whatever, there's a million ways to build thick walls, but we're all in this part of the world, you really need a thick wall.
0: Why do you choose the cellulose over foam? Is that for the embedded carbon?
1: Uh, it's for a bunch of reasons. Certainly the embedded carbon is a huge reason. I hate foam, frankly. And I think that there's absolutely no reason to use it above grade in a new construction
0: situation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah.
1: So, any kind of foam, whether it's rigid or sprayed, uh, has, as you said, a high embodied carbon content, meaning that the equivalent of CO2 that it's dumping into the atmosphere is quite high. There is a payoff, obviously, with decreased energy use, either decreased heating or cooling. But with some of these products, especially some of these products that have been banned, but were used quite a bit, the payoff was in the thousands or tens of thousands of years. And even now, if the payoff is in a hundred years, so we don't have a hundred years. That's my current, and that's pretty much all I think about, frankly, is climate change at this point and doing what we can. So it just makes, this is, as one of my mentors says, this is the worst moment in human history to be putting carbon in the atmosphere. So unless the payback is sing- low single digits, it really doesn't make sense. So anyway, so yes, so with cellulose is either carbon, relatively carbon neutral, or even carbon negative, depending on its source. In Maine, there's some great products. In fact, that you might want to talk to them in a future podcast. There's this company, Timber HP, and they, are, they took over an old paper mill, which we have a lot of in Maine. And we also have a boatload of unused pulp because the paper mills are, are pretty much dead. So anyway they are working on pulp virgin pulp based insulation products. They are the first product is going to be a blown in to replace cellulose. then they're hoping to do a bat product and then finally a board product and those would be those will be carbon negative products
0: how do they, they perform are,
1: i think this the wood the blown end supposedly is about the same as cellulose from what i understand which is about 3.7 per inch the bat i think is about the same as fiberglass the board is where it gets tricky right it, it it's much less than foam and i can't remember what the number is but I want to say around three, maybe. I don't know. I I don't remember what they're shooting for. And obviously there are some products already. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of Gutex, which comes over from Europe. So the product has been around for a while.
0: Okay, that's good to know. We'll link to them in the show notes and I'd like to research them a little bit more. Let's talk about this climate change while we're on the topic. (laughs) Uh, where Where do we even begin? So you're obviously passionate about this. A lot of our listeners... Terrified
1: might be a better term.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. What are the main crimes that we are committing as builders? What do we need to be focused on changing? And what is the alternative?
1: Right. The immediate need is to reduce the embodied carbon in the houses we build. Even before energy efficiency, you just need to, you just need to cut the carbon there's an incredible new tool called the beam calculator that the endeavor center in 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 southern southern canada put together and it's just a mind-blowingly incredible tool it's this huge database of products and you can plug in all your assemblies And see what the carbon load is. And don't get too caught up on the accuracy, but what it's really great for is comparing different assemblies and seeing which one is either seeing which one is lower carbon. So I would encourage all builders to check that out. It's obvious what the biggest is a huge source.
0: It's the biggest, am I right about that? Yeah,
1: typically, unless you're doing some crazy stuff. Trying to get rid of carbon, concrete is a great way to start. We built a summer house a while ago that was all on helical piers, no concrete at all. That worked really well. A bunch of my friends, I haven't had a chance to do it yet, but a bunch of my friends are doing these slabless slab details in basements where they're not pouring a concrete slab. They're just laying the rigid down and then putting a couple of layers of plywood over that, saving that concrete. So anyway, there's don't oversize your walls. Talk to your structural engineer. A lot of times people are throwing in 10-inch walls for no good reason.
0: Yeah. Back to the concrete for a second. There's a race to try to figure out What's going to be the concrete alternative? I don't know how successful those endeavors are up until this moment, but do you know anything about that? There's some experimentation with hempcrete. I just don't know how that's going.
1: I don't think hempcrete is, I mean Crete's a really cool product, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a replacement for concrete. I don't think it has a much structural I don't think it has much in the way of structural strength. Oh. So
0: your solution at the moment are to is to look at these concrete replacements. So right. piers, and, and okay. What else? What are some of the other culprits that right. we need to keep our Mind yeah. On. So
1: I'd say probably framing is the next big one. Don't. I think most people have gotten away from over framing. One of the things I was thinking about when we wrote the book, I wrote the section on framing materials. And we used to, when I was starting out, you the more would the better, right? It showed you cared and it showed you really wanted to get it done right. We'd have walls that were just packed with a ridiculous number of studs. And it took a long time. It took most of us a long time to get that, to get over that, to change our mindset. You no, know, it's stupid and it's taking up insulation space and wasting materials and blah, blah, blah. There's this whole optimal value engineering stuff. Don't use more. Again, talk to your engineers. See what you can get away with.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. Let's shift gears for a second. Okay. I don't know. Maybe this will play right back into the conversation. I think every, everything is yeah, going to come back to global yeah.
1: warming probably.
0: That's okay. That yep. was part of why I wanted to get you on here. Good. Just curious where you think that we're needlessly falling short as an industry right now, and what's the fix?
1: Got it. I think, so there's a few things. One is size. I think that people throw square footage at problems instead of thinking about better solutions. Sarah Susanka's books have had a good impact, The Not-So-Big House, but not enough, probably. People still want ridiculous amounts of room. So I think that's a huge problem, overbuilding, because it obviously wastes resources up front. But it also requires more to condition over. I'd say energy efficiency is just, it's ridiculous where we are. It's ridiculous that most of, I feel like every new house is a wasted opportunity on one level or another, right? There's always something that we should be doing better. And I'm certainly guilty of that as well. You can still have a client and they have their desires that outweigh whatever you want to do you can and we certainly try to steer them in and obviously there's a if you get a reputation as somebody who builds this way then the people coming to you typically are self-selecting to begin with so they're open to what you want to do but whatever there's always going to be maybe the view is to the north in, in a heating climate and you're you've got too much glazing or the view is to the south in your climate that you end up with more glazing than you'd want but i think overall i think The mystery, I think most of the mysteries of building science were figured out a while ago, a decade or two ago. The implementation has been pretty crappy.
0: Yeah. I remember there was a part in your book where you talked about this unnecessary assumption that you need more space than you do. And you all gave an example of a room that you talked about the guest room that we all think we need it. I think I need it. I've got parents and family that come visit. And your point was, look, it's not typically occupied all that often. And so why can't you have an office that doubles as a guest room? (laughs) Made me laugh when I read that because my dad for my entire building career has been obsessed with me putting Murphy beds. He thinks I need Murphy beds in every single house. That's a great idea. And every time I build a house, he asks if we got a Murphy bed. Where's the Murphy bed? And that's a really good example yeah. of how you can utilize that space to be a lot more efficient. And right. you showed a graph in that book as well about this just constant um, square footage sprawl that has happened, I think, since, what, the maybe the 50s or 60s. Yeah,
1: I think it started even before, but yes, yeah, definitely after the war. And yeah, as a, and that, I know, I remember that graph. You know, there's one line heading uphill, And that's square footage. And then there's a line heading downhill, which is average family size. So not only are houses getting bigger, but the family size is shrinking. So the square footage per person is just getting exponentially bigger.
0: So I completely agree with your thesis behind the problem. But I actually think that the enemy here is... A little bit more hidden than what we think. And I don't think that we can really make the progress we need on that front in terms of right sizing homes for what are, what we really need until there's a massive industry shift with the way appraisals are done. I think that appraisals are one of the biggest usters in the entire industry and they're plaguing so much They're affecting what what you're trying to accomplish with right-sizing these homes. And we have this very elementary approach to them. So it's, and Charlie Munger has a famous quote. He says, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. The incentive across the entire country right now is to build bigger homes because every additional square footage gets appraised for more money off of this very simplistic price per foot model. Even the real estate community is largely um, subject to that kind of thinking. So there's a real shift that has to happen in terms of how we value homes on the appraisal side, on the real estate side, away from so much emphasis on square footage and price per foot towards other things that are of value. Because right now, land across the United States is so expensive, especially here in, in my city. And one of the few ways for families to make sense of that investment and to get their money out is to put as many square feet on that property as they can. Why? Because it goes back to the appraisal and valuation metrics that we use. So I think that is squarely a topic that needs to be hit head on in order to achieve what you're wanting to achieve with right-sized homes.
1: Yeah, very. that was incredibly well put. And it's, we had this discussion group in Portland. That's what the Pretty Good House stuff came out of originally. And we met for about a decade until COVID and we're hoping to get going again someday. But anyway, we would announce the subject shortly before the meeting. And by far, the most popular event we ever did was a couple of people, a couple of appraisers came and talked to our group. And we had every, I don't know, probably had 90 people at that event. Yeah. Because everybody's on the same page as you, I think at that point, what everybody was freaking out about was we were trying to build these homes. There were no comps, so the only thing that was counting was square footage, right? You didn't get any, you didn't get any financial ins- credit for solar panels, for energy efficiency, for any of that stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I think the way, yeah.
0: Like, well, if we like, have any listeners out there who have any ideas. On that front or have any resources that are worth talking to so that we can get a little bit more light on that issue please reach out i would love to explore that a little bit more deeply
1: yeah um, i would definitely recommend and the other piece of on that too is just that people move too much right we're a very mobile country people don't live in their houses very long if you are going to live in your house for 30 years who cares what the appraisal
0: is? that's right that is a very big driver behind all this as well all right let's talk a little bit with a focus to the future so You obviously see a lot about what's happening, what's evolving within the industry. What does the next evolution in home building look like if you had to predict?
1: We've been talking about off-site building for a long time, and it never quite seems to make the leap. I think it may finally be happening. I don't know about in your part of the world, but up here, we're lucky to have some really interesting companies. Benson. Benson Wood has these Unity Homes. He's in New Hampshire. Bright Built Home has some great stuff. Anyway, there's various companies up here in New England doing some really cool stuff. There are companies that are delivering passive house level wall assemblies to a job sites. So I think that is happening, which is very exciting on one level. On another level, as a general contractor who handles a lot of carpentry in-house, it's a drag because it's another kind of level of de-skilling, which makes me sad but it's we're not gonna solve the housing crisis. We're so underbuilt, right? We have such a huge need for units, especially in the multifamily world. So anyway, that's what I see happening.
0: I've got a friend that is looking at actually bringing a prefab facility down into Texas. I don't know how much I can say about it, but right. it would be a massive nine figure type type investment. And I think that's probably one of the issues about the slowness in adoption has just been the upfront up capital that's required. And then it seems like there's also been for that immense capital, there's also just been some real challenges in terms of what can be built. But it sounds like with this company he's looking at investing in, it's going to, they have a lot of that solved. So yeah. I'm hopeful that may be on the cusp of some real breakthroughs in terms of just adoption of that technology.
1: Yeah. And if it's well-designed, I'm never going to build more than two houses a year. But if you've got a prefab company that's delivering product that can be put together by a reasonably skilled crew and put up a very high performance house, that's just incredible.
0: For sure. Let's shift to our last question. And this is a little bit off the wall, but it's on everybody's mind right now. That is in the current economic climate. What are the opportunities out there? Do you have any, any golden idea for us?
1: I mentioned this earlier, but I think that on a mercenary level, being known as a high performance builder, I think has been good for my business. It's still a niche market. So I would encourage people to get into that. I think that in terms of the business, the money side of things, I think my clientele is richer than average. They have the, and they, and they're interested in pouring their resources into a high performing home.
0: Do you think that you get those clients now because you have that reputation? And so most yeah. of the people that come to you are interested in that. So it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a good way yes. because of what you've built. A virtuous yeah. circle. That's a good way to put it. So how does someone who wants a brand in high-performance homes, do you have any first steps that you think they should uh, take?
1: Yeah. So the first thing is just know your region and know, know the building science, which is tricky, which is whatever. It's complicated, but it's not, you don't need a doctorate or you you can figure it out. And then if you're a builder, I guess I'd say talk to architects. A lot of the, most of my jobs are design driven at one level or another. Most architects I know are desperate for good builders that they can trust to actually follow the details. If you find a build if you find an architect who's very interested in high performance and is willing to draw out the details, they would like nothing better than to find a builder to work with,
0: yeah. and it should actually be pretty easy to convey to right. architect community in your city that you have that knowledge base about how to build high performance homes. that's right. definitely not a, rocket science. And, and, and,
1: it does not take long for that to spread. And the other thing I'd say is that we, there's this, the whole BS and beer movement, which if your listeners don't know, I would encourage them to check it out. This was one of my co-authors did the first BS and beer chapter here in Maine, Mike Maines. And it just has exploded, especially in COVID. They took it online during COVID. But there's local groups everywhere now. Not everywhere, but it's amazing. Sacramento just opened one. Cincinnati just started one. There's nothing magic. It's just the name. There's nothing magic. It's not like there's a rule book or whatever. But anyway, I would encourage people, if you do not have a community, to create it. And discussion groups, it doesn't take more than half a dozen people meeting at a bar to have a really great discussion. Get together once every month or two, have a, bring in a manufacturer's rep, bring in an architect, bring in whoever to talk if you want, or just have a topic and have a discussion.
0: Yeah. Great advice. Dan, I enjoyed our talk. Thank you for coming on. It's
1: My pleasure.
0: And I enjoyed the book as well. I encourage our listeners <laughs> to go out <laughs> to and become, become one readers. of your readers. Yeah, <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, all right. It. Yeah. Thank you, Dan.